Hi, I'm Connor Byrne, and this is That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique insights. Well, welcome to season three of That's What I Call Marketing. We are kicking off season three with another amazing guest. Today, I am joined by Dom Dwight of Betty's and Taylor's of Harrogate. You may know Betty's and Taylor's for their brand, Yorkshire Tea. And during his 15-year career at Betty's and Taylor's, Dom has seen Yorkshire Tea reach the number one spot for market share. The brand is now claiming over 40% market share and their Everything's Done Proper platform has been a driving force in that success since 2017. The long-term campaign continues to resonate with audience thanks to in part, its use of celebrities like Sir Patrick Stewart and Sean Bean, but also the brilliant uh, writing of the team at Lucky Generals. Today, we talk about Dom's path into marketing. Great example of a non-linear path. We chat about building blocks to the campaign of Yorkshire Tea. And like all things famous, it didn't happen overnight. But we discover how certain things have accelerated the, the path to growth. We talk about the importance of try, tying the work to commerciality. We talk about effectiveness, creating a summer banger and the world of Taylor's coffee. And we also touch on Don's new role that he's taking in the business. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening or watching so you never miss an episode. Of That's what I call marketing ever again. You can rate this and other episodes, of course, and follow us all over social by finding That's what I call marketing. And of course, if you need help growth through marketing, get in touch with us today and see how we can partner with you to help you build the right marketing strategy and execution plan for your business. With years of experience, agency and client side across lots of sectors, we can come in and offer services across a range of areas. Just visit that's what I call marketing.com. And if you would like to get involved with the show through sponsorship or partnerships, get in touch with us. Dom, thanks. Take two. I'm going to be very honest. This is take two. Dom, thanks a million for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. Uh, and uh, you're my very first guest on season three. So thanks a million. Really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. It's an honor to be here and a privilege to be part of kicking off 2024 with you. Yeah, brilliant. Well, listen, anyone who may not know you, uh, I'll let you just do the, the brief introduction to, to Dom Dwight. Sure. Well, um, so I'm Dom Dwight. Uh, I was the marketing director at Taylors of Harrogate. Uh, I'm moving into a new role, but staying with the company, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But I've, I've been marketing director for seven and a half years, been with the company for 15. Um, prior to that, I used to work in regional journalism as an editor and a food writer. And I kind of made my way into marketing through uh, copywriting and then social media. Um, and I suppose the biggest thing that people might know our company for and the work I've done is for Yorkshire Tea. So in, in the time that I've worked for the business, Yorkshire Tea has gone from being kind of distant fourth place standard black tea in the UK to uh, the number one by quite a long way. Um, and I think our kind of marketing efforts have been pretty crucial to delivering that. Um, so it's been a fun time to be part of it. Um, look, it's an amazing, amazing brand, amazing story, and I can't wait to, to get into it. Um, Interesting. I always, I'm always fascinated by, by people's paths into, into marketing. You say you, you were into journalism, um, but you, you did music in college, am I right? Uh, well, I, no, I played in a band. Oh, you played uh, in so, a band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, at university, I studied English and history of art. But in my sort of late teenage years before university, I got very into drums and I had a variety of bands going on with friends. And then when I went to uni, I was very on a mission to find like-minded musician type folk um and actually if i'm honest the being in a band element of university probably became more of a priority than the the course i was studying yeah uh any any success were you were you in the charts <laughs> no um no we 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 had like quite a lot of local success in i went to university in leeds um and we basically played uh the band was called brass moustache which works in both a, a northern and a southern accent. Um, and uh, we played kind of every venue going, um, did quite well, uh, but never got as far as a recording contract, which was obviously what we were really shooting for. Yeah. And um, the, the, my bandmates basically concluded that we needed to move to London if we were ever going to sort of get anywhere. And at okay. that point, I was starting to fall out of love with doing 
being in a band for a job because it made it less fun. Um, and I'd also, um, I, I was starting to get quite serious about a girl that I was seeing and okay. I, it kind of felt like I was being forced to make a big choice and I'm quite pleased with the choice I made because um, I'm I'm now married to said girl and that worked okay. out very well. Um, but yeah, just long story short, the band then moved to London and they got signed within about six months. <laughs> uh, they? Yeah, they did. Um, and um, I think they had maybe three or four really fun years of touring and, you know, getting treated like royalty, depending on which country they went to. And, um, you know, I, there's no bitterness. Like, they're, they're really good friends of mine and I was really happy for them. Um, oh, and, you know, yeah. I, I've gone on to do stuff I've been very happy about. So it worked yeah. out well. Yeah. Um, that's amazing, though. Like, what, a, what a story. <laughs> and you, you, so you went into journalism, probably natural from, from English, but then that, that's how you got into obviously, obviously writing, but copywriting then kind of became mm. a thing. How did that all kind of transpire? Because it's not, a, not necessarily a linear path. No, no, not at all. And there's not a lot about my path that is linear, actually. <laughs> like I've been very, um, I think, opportunistic. Um, but the, so I, what happened with me with journalism was um, I, I, I didn't set out to get into journalism, but I basically, when I started doing it, discovered how much I loved it. And I think I had a kind of natural tendency to prioritize what would the audience make of how I'm saying this and what I'm saying right. is there a way to make it interesting which I think is a an instinct that, that has served me well in whatever job I've had um but the thing about regional journalism is just that in the time that I was working um there this is like the the noughties the mid noughties and the rise of internet advertising was basically killing most regional journalism it was taking all of the ad revenue out of it um, so I just felt like I was working in a very precarious industry that already had, was quite badly paid in the first place. Right. Yeah. Um, so I kind of started diversifying like lots of journalists do. I was freelance sort of writing for other publications, doing restaurant reviews like for the Yorkshire Post and things like that. But copywriting um, came about through some restaurant owners who I had written about who then said they liked my writing and actually was I available to like help write copy for their website and things like that and um, right. so again I didn't set out to do it but what I found was um, it was quite an easy transition to make and there was something about web copy that I, I quite liked the um, requirement to be really pithy you know yeah. you've got to get to the point you know but you also really want to engage people all that stuff um, and I gradually realized copywriting was um, more of a money spinner than journalism um and the, the part of me that was maybe ethically conflicted that thought that journalism was where all the integrity lay um i think i gradually realized that's not true like when you're a journalist you're still flogging a product it's just yeah. a product is a magazine or a paper uh you still represent a brand um and actually if you're careful about who you do the copywriting for you don't feel like you have to compromise on your own integrity if you feel like you're promoting something that is uh, something you could be proud of. Yeah, yeah. That um, and, and was advertising? Were you interested in advertising then? Because it's again, it's kind of like the connecting dots, right? Because you were kind of one thing lead to another. But was there kind of a, you know, re yeah? Um, or I what this is is I think it's like several different strands of things I've been interested in or um good at over my life. Um, so I I was very interested in advertising when I was a young teenager. And, um, and then I, to the extent that I, I actually did, um, my work experience at GCSE age was with Saatchi and Saatchi because I grew up, um, oh, wow. just in, in, in Southeast, um, London. So it was possible for me to do things like that, which was great. Um, but I, I think, uh, it, in my late teenage years, I got very, I became very sort of, I guess, um, shaped by the music and the culture that I was interested in, which was all very, very anti-commercial and anti-corporate. Um, you know, if I, you can't be listening to Rage Against the Machine and then planning to be the machine, can you? Um, so <laughs> I, uh, I think I turned away from that stuff, but, but actually when I was in journalism, then copywriting, and then gradually realized that there were forms of copywriting and forms of marketing and forms of advertising that you could be really proud of because you're telling people about a good thing. Yeah. Um, then I think I got my head around, actually, there are there are ways to do this where you're not compromising. Yeah, that like because I actually worked in I worked in nonprofits for a long time. Probably mm. similar kind of thing. I was like you know, kind of do well in the world and, and and that kind of thing. But actually, what I realized actually when I worked in fundraising and nonprofits, 
how competitive and commercial it was. I definitely had that naivety thing that I think loads of people have, which is you sort of think that certain industries are somehow purer yeah. uh, or yeah. less competitive or whatever. And, and I just think that they're not. Um, and that actually you can find problems and sort of integrity challenges wherever you go. Um, so you've just got to be careful and choosy about who you work for, who you work with, who you represent, haven't you? Yeah, 100%. And then that obviously then led you to uh, Betty and Taylor's. Uh, how, how did that come about? It was a, a copywriting role, was it, that they, they looked Yeah, they had, they had a... I mean, the, the funny thing is it's, that's not the role I actually applied for. I, um, when, I was, when I was trying to diversify away from my journalism job, um, I had uh, become quite good friends with the uh, the press officer at Betty's um, okay. just because she was a lovely lady who sent the most impeccably written press releases, always with a beautiful high-res photo and, and often with a free cake, which like, if you know regional journalists, like, that, it's, it's not complicated getting coverage. Like, just send them free things and send them a decent usable picture and you know good words. So I always had her pegged as like a good person. And I, I remember chatting to her about feeling like I needed a change. Um, I'd learned enough about Betty's and Taylor's to learn that it was this quirky family-owned business. And I loved the family story. The more I learned about their values, the more I just thought, I, these sound like a good set of people. And they, had a, they were advertising a role, which was actually a campaign manager for their tree planting uh, environmental campaign which at the time was called trees for life i mean betty's and taylor's have basically been planting trees in one way or another since 1990 something um i think they've planted about eight million trees oh, so wow. far big part of our kind of um our carbon neutral journey has been that as well um anyway i uh, i applied for the role uh absolute you know moonshocks i had zero qualifications for it and um, I really need to thank the HR director, who at the time was a lady called Alison Straw. She, um, because she didn't just chuck my CV in the bin, she contacted me and said, senior CV, I don't think you're right for this role, but there's another role that we're thinking about recruiting for, which I think you might be um, like well-advised to apply for. And it was this in-house copywriter role. So you know, uh, that led to a, a different conversation. And then luckily enough, they chose me for that. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I love talking to people for like who have non-linear paths as we've said with with yours and I, th I think it's great that people hear both sides as so like the person who went to college and only ever wanted to do marketing and advertising you, you mentioned like yorkshire was yorkshire tea that like the main brand of, of betty's at the time or were there were there other brands that you were working on so um no actually um the sort of family business consists of um betty's which is um quite separate to taylor's and betty's is basically uh it is five cafe tea rooms dotted around yorkshire beautiful if you've never been they're like lovely place to go for afternoon tea um or all sorts of kind of baked uh, delicious things i knew the betty side of the business when i when i joined the business i only really vaguely understood that there was this taylor's side to the business which okay. was the mass manufacture of um tea and coffee and speciality tea um and as the copywriter for the first year or so i didn't really get much chance to work on yorkshire tea because anything to do with yorkshire tea was tended to be handled like by a a big london agency and it would right. be you know it would be ad because really it was it was advertising on nothing there wasn't really there were no other forms of comms um so it was it was it was the um the kind of advent of social media really that gave me an opening because uh, i think it was too small and too unknown and unpredictable for our agency at the time to be bringing it and saying this is something we should be doing so it was me as just a kind of like you know one man band in a upstairs office with no one really knowing what i was doing developing wow. yorkshire tea on twitter um that uh you know I, I think i was just given it was a really lovely um combination of just that moment where the technology was taking off yeah and nobody really understood it well enough that meant that there was no one breathing down my neck so right i just had one or two really supportive people who thought that what i was finding out was quite interesting which was you know basically there were people online talking about tea and um as you know mundane as that sounds back then that was like free insight and and yeah. then and the thing that was really good about it was the kind of comments it, the way people were talking on social media back then it was they were talking as if they were having a private conversation so it just felt like the type of 
stuff they were saying was very unfiltered and, yeah. and very authentic. Um, I always use the example, you just imagine like, imagine like a graphic designer who's left home from Sheffield and got the job of a lifetime working for Apple or something. And he's realizing the stuff he's missing from home and he befriends some web designer who's based somewhere else in California. And there's also from the North of England. And the two of them suddenly strike up a friendship, talk about how much they'd kill for a cup of Yorkshire tea right now. That was the kind of conversation that I was finding. And I was able to sort of bring those conversations to the kind of right people at Taylor's and say, look, this is interesting, isn't it? Do you think we should be on there so that we can listen and maybe answer questions and just participate in the conversation? Um, and I do think that start in social media was quite key for Yorkshire Tea. Like we didn't join late with a real clear idea of how we were going to exploit it and make the most out of it. We joined early in a small way. And our main thing was we wanted to listen and join in rather than broadcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? It was kind of almost a not naivety, but like just, a, you know, a, a newness to it all and, and figuring it mm. out and you were you were there. What was the tone of voice that you adopted then at the time? Like, did you have the, the platform that you have now, which we'll get into, but was it a similar tone of voice? The tone of voice was really just sort of me. Yeah. Um, and then when it, when it tipped to a point where I had lots of other things to do, I couldn't keep that up. I went looking for somebody who could become the kind of main social media person. Tried a few different people before I found this uh, lovely chap, Tom Hay. Tom uh, a bit like me, he was a former journalist, but he had been a news editor of the Harrogate Advertiser. So uh, obviously, you know, we're not talking the Sunday Times here, but um, there is something about news that just, I think it instills like a quickness of wit, of decision-making, of judgment, you know, all those things. Um, so Tom just slotted in really well. And Tom's much funnier than me. Uh, <laughs> um and and he's taken more and more risks. I suppose it started with me giving him the cover to do that. But as yeah. he grew in confidence and yeah. as we grew in confidence, um, he was able to push it further and further. So if you look at the tone of voice of Yorkshire Tea today compared to 10 years ago, we're a lot more, um, uh, we're just a lot more confident in our use of humor and in, our, in the way that we respond to people. It's always, for me, the really important principle is always got to be cut through with humanity. Like, so we, we always try to be, um, like authentic and compassionate and decent with people. Um, you know, it's, I'd never want to be the kind of brand that like we put being funny first above being nice. Kind. Yeah. Yeah. Probably maybe Northern values a bit, right? Because that's to mm. me comes across and, and the, then the platform, I think, that you you kind of leaned into around the idea of um, everything being done proper. I'd love to talk a bit about that. And sure, I, I I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there, there's a there's a sign in is it the canteen or something or somewhere in the in the building that says something along those lines. And that's yeah, yeah, there is, there is. Uh, it's it's a kind of it's a lovely story because it's it's an it's a nice sort of evolution, but I. Basically, I'll try not to tell the very long version of this story, but I, I do have to go back to the campaign before the one that you mentioned. So okay. in around 2011, we, um, we came up with a campaign where to prove how much we cared about doing tea properly, um, we uh, sent our converted ice cream van, Little Urn, um, which is basically an ice cream van that serves tea, uh, done up to look like the Yorkshire Tea Box. We sent him to America and drove him around finding Brits who were on holiday or expats who were suffering from terrible tea, and we rescued them. And uh, it was a great it was a great gig for me because I got to go for a couple of weeks, and my job was to kind of like report on social media where we'd been and where we were going and oh, stuff. Wow. Um, but the, the the reason why I mentioned the campaign is that um, I think that's the first point, firstly, where we started using this word proper. Uh, and secondly, it was quite a bold campaign and it gave us confidence. And in the following few campaigns, we stuck with this idea of proper, but we kind of grew in bolshiness and quirkiness um, with successive campaigns. Um, then when we get to, I think it was 2016 and 2017, and that's when we um, shifted to working with Lucky Generals as our creative yeah. agency and where everything's done proper was their um, strategy. And... Um, the key thing for them was that they noticed correctly that what we'd done is we'd built this proper thing into being quite powerful. 
but really to stand any chance of one day overtaking Tetley or PG Tips, who are the number two and number one by quite some way. Um, we needed to find a way to to get beyond the audience we were reaching and start to speak to some of their audience right. um, in a more powerful way. And um, this was true. Like what was happening was I think we'd done a really good job of making everyone that was already aware of Yorkshire Tea become super aware of Yorkshire Tea and to love us a bit more. Yeah. Um, but what we weren't doing was we just hadn't found a way to crack through to the people where Yorkshire Tea just wasn't on their radar at all. Where um, where Lucky's came in with some absolute genius was just um, in the use of celebrity, but in the clever use of celebrity where you're not using a celebrity as a gimmick. So this, this idea was... Um, if we went out trying to tell people that Yorkshire tea is better because of some technical product related, yeah, claim, yeah, yeah, it wouldn't cut through. People would just not switch on to it because people are quite habitual about tea. And um, we talk about sleep shopping. They're not very conscious in their choices. Um, whereas actually, if what we did instead was humorously and dramatically bring to life that um, we care so much about doing everything properly that even the smallest, most mundane things are done to the nth degree of properness. And what better way to illustrate that than to have some of the sort of some of the world's most famous experts at that thing. Um, so, you know, we had uh, the we had the hold music was um, performed live by the Kaiser Chiefs. Um, our interviews were conducted by uh, Sir Michael Parkinson. Um, our internal Package couriers were the Brownlee brothers, the the um, uh, Olympic triathletes. Um, we had uh, Sean Bean doing his rousing kind of general type thing, but as our induction speech for new yeah. starters. And then most recently, we had um, Sir Patrick Stewart uh, doing leaving speeches. And the campaign has just been so successful. Um, the the uh, Patrick was the most recent one, but I guess what we've done is we actually launched. Uh, that campaign with three executions. So we started with the Kaisers, with Parkey, and with the Brownleys. Um, and it was, um, thankfully, none of those folk was uh, quite as famous as someone like Sean Bean or Patrick yeah. Stewart. So we could afford those three okay. groups of people. Right. Also, it was a completely untested idea. So, um, you know, you, you, they, they don't know what they're getting into. So the price was affordable, basically. Um, and there's just something really helpful about having three executions of the same idea in circulation at the same time. Because what it meant was if you saw one, you probably got the point. But if you saw all three, you definitely got the point. But with enough variety that it didn't bore people. And um, I, that really helped us understand that we were onto something. So yeah, this this where everything's done proper is really working for us. Um, and, uh, you know the time of sort of recording, we're not hearing anything to suggest we should change yet. And then finally, just back to your original question. Sorry, I did say it was a long answer. Um, where, where, where part of this came from was when we've been talking about proper, one of the previous ads had a line in it where it said, we don't do things like that around here. We do things proper. And we do things proper as a quote had been printed in a big decal on one of the office walls. And when, when Lucky's came to see us, they saw that. And I think it just really imprinted it upon them that like this, this is for real. Like it's not just a strap line. We mean it. Um, yeah. And isn't that lovely yeah. when you find something that's actually like really authentic, true to the brand and, you know, people walk past it every day in the office or wherever, you know, that they kind of, they live it and believe it. And then it's kind of, you're not trying to look, yeah, make something up, I guess, you know, but it has oh, a yeah. real place. I mean, I do understand that sometimes if you're starting something from scratch, you kind of have to start with yeah. an intention and then make it real. Um, but what uh, I've never really been into is the, I mean, I suppose this is maybe the anti-corporate part of me is still there. Uh, <laughs> I just, I've, uh, it fills me with existential dread, the idea of being in a business that's got values printed on the wall, but everybody knows that actually those values are nonsense and they're not lived and they're not real and they're not sincere. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this whole thing about authenticity, I think it's incredibly important personally for me. I feel like together with my team and a bunch of other important people, we've made it essential to Yorkshire Tea. And I, I'm therefore really happy with that formula because it works for me as an employee and it works for the brand. And it feels like it works for our consumers. So, you know, it's a win-win. Yeah. Did you, like when you were, it's very interesting. I, I actually didn't know the 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 three executions was almost an intentional thing, right? Um, and kind of, were you, he not, not hedging bets, but were you kind of 
were you thinking, well, if one, if two don't work, one might, or was it, or were you more kind of, it was a way to tell the, the story in a, in a better way? Uh, I think it probably was a little bit of hedging our bets going on, but it wasn't from a negative place of we had concerns about any one of them. Right. I think, um, there was a little bit of being spoiled for choice and then realizing maybe we didn't need to, um, there that we did. I, I, I guess what we particularly worried about was each of our first executions felt like they were strong, but would they really get noticed, um, by the whole country? Cause that was, yeah. you remember the, the point I made earlier about wanting yeah. to cut through to those diehard PG tips and Tetley drinkers. And, um, you know, at the more that we tried to weigh up each execution as the sole execution, the more we thought, well, look, I think we, you know, wrongly or rightly, we presumed that Kaiser Chiefs would probably um, speak to a young audience, that Parky would speak to an older audience, yeah, and yeah. that the Brownleys would probably speak, we thought, to a more of a sporting audience, which therefore means it's probably a little bit more male. And we were just trying to make sure that we had covered as wide a sort of set of audiences as possible. And in your discussions and your conversations with with luckies and and also people in uh, in the business, did did you talk about fame? Because fame, you know, these obviously are fame ads. Mm, they, yeah, I, well, I I guess some at some point early in the brief, we agreed that what we were trying to achieve with Yorkshire Tea was to make it culturally famous. Okay, um, and I I think that's that was a lucky's push because what they saw was when you looked in the Yorkshire Tea community, like the the online audience, um, um, and we you know got quite a absurd amount of loyalty and engagement, and in some cases evangelism for Yorkshire Tea. So yeah. when you look into that space, what you see is a brand that means a lot to uh, a bunch of passionate people. And I think what they were thinking was, we need to find a way to tap into this magic and make some of that feeling spread around the nation. Um, and you know, th- it was just their smart play was that um, actually, if you use this idea and you particularly lean on the use of celebrity, then that's the way. Because if the person watching the telly doesn't particularly, Yorkshire Tea doesn't really resonate with them yet. Mm. But they do know who Parky is, or yeah. they do know the Kaiser Chiefs. Um, then that's the way that we um, get into their um, frame of reference, and and that and has it, worked. And it's also like you know, I, th- I think to the stuff that Paul Feldwick writes about in in his books, you know, about fame, and you know, even going back to I can never remember who wrote who wrote this quote, but the idea of you know advertising in the sixties when TVs were just starting out, it was like you're going to be in someone's living room, be you know. And enjoyable and guests that they want you to come back. Like there's a lot of mm-hmm. that about it, you know, that was like, this is work that people would want to see over and over again. Yes. Uh, I, I, I absolutely live by that. You know, that idea that like, um, I just think it's so healthy for anyone involved in advertising to remember that it's an interruptive thing yeah. and that the, the people you're interrupting did not ask you to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, if you're lucky, they might accept that there's a sort of value exchange going on, which is like, I have to put up with this because that's what allows me to watch YouTube for free or yeah. that's what makes ITV possible, you know, all that stuff. Um, and I, I've, I've kind of said this so many times that I'm a bit sick of myself saying it, but I, I, I genuinely remember a period when I was growing up where that, that thing they say, where the ads were often better than the programs they interrupted. And, um, I think that's one of the things that really connected me with lucky generals through the pitch was i just felt like we'd we'd met kindred spirits um and i i feel like that's been really important to the yorkshire tea advertising actually is um not just the strategy and the use of proper or the use of celebrities but the actual craft of the scripts is yeah. that they're funny they're but they're basically 30 or 60 second comedy sketches yeah and, and that and that really reminds me of the kind of classic british comedy that i grew up watching you know, whether it's like Monty Python or the fast show or whatever, just like, um, like really lovely, entertaining British wit that then, um, also does a really good job of landing a product message. Yeah. And it's, and it's hard to do, you know, it really is not, it's not easy. Is that why you, do you think it it, maybe people don't do, we don't do enough of it because it is really hard to get right because there isn't enough of it. it. you know, maybe yeah. it's a very strongly held view I have is a lot of our advertising isn't enjoyable enough. It doesn't all have to be funny, but at least make it enjoyable. Yeah, it's I <clears throat> I think my main way of trying to understand why so much advertising is really 
NAF is a lot of it's global. And I think if okay. you're a global brand and you're, you've got an ad platform that needs to work in multiple countries and in different cultures and in different languages, I, I personally don't think that should stop you from making an entertaining ad, but I can understand why it's a lot less straightforward. So that's one thing. Um, but I also think there's just a lot of conflicting thinking circling around, you know, if you, you've got to get a message through and the person's not going to give you their full attention. So you want to hit them over the head with the sledgehammer with your message. And it's like, well, that's one way to go about it. But, you know, so I, what's the classic example would be Barry Scott and Silit Bang, you know, one of the most annoying adverts ever, but feels like it was very deliberately annoying. And yeah. the fact that I can still remember the character's yeah. name is testament to how effective it was i just think if i could choose i would rather be fondly remembered <laughs> yeah yeah um so yeah um i think maybe Barry Scott. The, I, there's yeah and the, and the other thing is uh i guess we we all kind of woke up to the fact that um rational advertising is weak and emotional advertising is powerful but what i feel like has happened in the last sort of 10 years is when we think about emotion, we've tended to go for the heartstrings, haven't we? Yeah. And, you know, some really amazing ads that have done that, like very touching ads. You know, sometimes you watch an ad and you're like, I cannot believe I've got a lump in my throat about a national lottery advert or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't believe John Lewis have made me cry. Um, and I, I, you know, I feel like those ads are, um, the best of those ads are incredible. But what it led to was like a bandwagon of loads of people trying to break your heart. And if it's done badly, it's just so annoying, isn't it? And and it, I just feel like not many people went for the other angle of um, actually will make people laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And I think COVID was definitely, remember that period of COVID advertising where mm. everyone was there to help? Yes. <laughs> like, someone did a yeah. mashup, I think, of all those. And like, I've you seen know, it. Same piano track. I uh, it's, it's really like, it's quite a, that, that mashup is quite a damning indictment of marketing and advertising, isn't it? Advertising, isn't it? Because it's just like one ad after another that just has the same sentiment, the same words, the same. It's all yeah. like in these troubling times, we're yeah, yeah. here together. We know what you're going through. Da, da, da. We, funnily enough, we actually had during COVID, I think this is possibly quite a useful example. We, so we produced a film which we called The Social Distancing Teapot. And this film was released. It was an online film only. We released it just before people were going back after the first lockdown and it was an idea that luckies had had that we were playing around with for a while but to be honest i and i think my team felt a bit nervous because it was a humorous ad and it's like yeah really is it okay to make fun and have a joke about covid like it's quite a serious subject but um our angle that we were coming from was recognizing that in britain it felt like there was a sort of shared cultural truth which was we were all feeling quite nervous and awkward about going back to work yeah. some of those nerves are about serious things but most of the nerves were just about like oh it's going to be a bit weird isn't it going back to work and trying to maintain two meters distance and so the so the you know long story short the idea of the video was we created a teapot that had a two meter long spout um so that the mm -hmm. teapot served as a way for you to do tea together but keep a respectable distance probably should have sent one to downing street shouldn't we <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Oh god, it was so good though. That was and it was, it was what was needed. You know what I mean? It was like okay, like, yes, we can, we can have, we can have a laugh. It, it, you know, one of the things I did want to ask you about because you you, you touched on it. You know, when you joined, um, the the you were fourth in in the market. You're now number one. In number in one, yeah, by quite some way now, yeah. Um, and I've so, somebody had had sent me a note a while ago uh, last last season um about this podcast and said oh it's just a it's just a hiding place for brand marketers you know kind of accusing me and and us of i'm not really being commercially minded and not not thinking about that now i strongly disagree with that person um but clearly the work has had an impact on the business can you talk to me a bit about that and how you've kind of seen the impact the the campaign has had on the business yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think the key thing is that not to see them as separate things. You know, the the creativity and the kind of stuff that people might think of as fluffy and the commercial part is because I think if you just focus on the commercial part, then that's a really difficult path to tread and build anything significant. Um, and if you if you just focus on the fluff, uh, you know, you could end up um, 
not, you know, you'll miss the kind of commercial realities of the market you're in. So what I think we had was we, I joined the business at a point when the brand had gone through a decade or so of rapid distribution expansion. So Yorkshire Tea was physically available in right. many, many more places, but it had, it was relatively under communicated. So the mental availability side for Yorkshire Tea was really low. So I, that was another example of right place, right time. You know, I, I think I work with a group of people to gradually go, okay, so how do we tackle that mental availability thing? And, um, you know, it took a leap of faith at first for the powers that be within the organization to sign off a higher level of media investment and to go for a slightly more creative um, right. ad approach. Um, it's worth saying, like, we didn't get it right straight away. So prior to that campaign that um, we did in 2011 where we went to the U.S., We'd had a few goes and they were, some of the executions kind of worked on their own, but they didn't ladder up to anything big and lasting and some of them didn't really work. So the, the US campaign and the use of proper was our first campaign where we, the feedback we got was proper isn't working. Um, because the ad was quite bold, it got the trade way more interested in Yorkshire tea. Right. So we were finding that they were quite supportive and, you know, when you're trying to get better display at a time when you're advertising, their belief in our ad helped us. That then meant that when we, and this is probably one of the harder nosed bits that I'd really like to get across is, um, through this period, we were quite fixed on measuring the effectiveness, um, you know, econometrics style. Yeah. Um, so because we could show a, a positive return, um, then you know, even if you already believed um, that advertising was something you needed to do, actually the evidence was like, it's paying you to do this. So that was great. That was a really right. important element. And um, what we, I guess where we were fortunate was, you know, you, so you take one step and then you show the evidence that that step has been a worthwhile investment. Then you take second step and we would build on what we'd learned from the last campaign, push the envelope slightly by being a bit louder and a bit braver. Um, maybe up the investment and the, and then the next round of effectiveness said you, you're still on the right track keep going um when we got to where everything's done proper i guess the use of celebrity was both a commercial sensitivity because i basically needed more money yeah um and a cultural sensitivity because there were some people that worked at taylor's were a bit like oh is that not a bit gimmicky and a bit naff and i had to reassure them like not in the way we're going to do it um, and thankfully, when we launched that, those three executions, even though it had been a higher level of investment that we were used to, the impact was immediate. So there was really encouraging signs in the early days. Um, and the way we executed it, anyone that had fears that use of celebrity was going to feel a bit naff and gimmicky, well, they were reassured. So that then gave us the confidence to go on and work with people like Sean Bean, who, because uh, of his higher level of fame, is, is a more expensive well, person yeah, yeah. to book. Um, but the Sean Bean ad, um, you know, the other campaign had been really successful, but the Sean Bean ad on its own was kind of more successful than everything else put together. Um, you know, I knew he was famous and I was excited about working with him, but I wasn't prepared for the level of fame that Sean actually has. Really? Because I was thinking people basically think of him as like, he's the guy out of Game of Thrones and maybe Lord of the Rings. But um, actually there were people coming out of the woodwork. You know, I had um, kind of, uh, sort of people my mum's age who would be like, oh, I remember him in Lady Chatterley's Lover or as Sharp and stuff. Right. Like, oh, God, I f you forget that he's been a, a, a job in actor for a long time. So yeah. he actually sits in people's consciousness. Anyway, so Sean Bean was probably like the point that really that was the slam dunk where it's like um, the impact of that. When we launched Sean Bean, uh, our market share, um, we basically overtook Tetley at that point and became the number two. Oh, wow. So that helped as well, you know, when you've yeah. got the evidence, but you've also got like a key milestone that gets everybody yeah. excited. Um, and then around about the time just before we launched uh, Patrick Stewart's um, version, um, we also then took over, uh, overtook PG Tips. Um, and uh, so when I first joined the business, I think Yorkshire Tea had about 11, 12% share, was in fourth place. Uh, PG Tips and Tetley had about 34, 33% share each. So huge, you know, dominated the market yeah. massively. Now we've got a uh, 36.7% share and PG and Tetley are down in the low twenties. In fact, in like the last quarter, we've just, uh, passed the 40% mark for the first time. Um, wow. so it's, it's, it's mad, you know, it's, um, 
uh, you know, I've always believed in Yorkshire tea, but I don't think any of us really ever thought it would go this far. That big. Like, and it was that like a an articulated ambition that you had at the time that you to be number one. Um, for quite a long part, no. I think we we basically we were a challenger brand in that we wanted to prove that the others the other guys were wrong kind of thing and that there was a better way so we we yeah. i felt like we had a big mission which was we wanted because the other thing that's worth adding is all of this time like the standard black tea category even though it's a massive category all of this story that that category has been in decline and it's still yeah. in decline now so um i think rather than focusing on trying to be the biggest we were just trying to focus on being the best and to have a positive message that this product and this category was not yesterday's news uh, and it was something to be excited about and to remember how much Brits in particular love it. Um, yeah. I think it was really once we got to the um, where everything's done proper campaign and we had this ambition of becoming culturally famous, that was the first time that we started talking about shooting for number one one day. But right. even then, I think we felt a bit uncomfortable making it all about being number one. Like we wanted, like I said, I think, We've got a real thing in our business about uh, it's better to be better, not bigger. Right. You know, and, it, and if, if bigness comes as a result of being better, fine. But we're not out for bigness in the first place. I think that, that is what, where a lot of companies go wrong. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Like as a, as a culture to work within that it's actually it's about being the best. It's a very different articulation of Maybe the same thing as you say, ultimately, it might lead you to being number one, mm. but being better is is a really interesting way of uh, talking about it. One of the things, obviously, that has, has happened has been like fresh consistency. You know, as you've said, you've had different executions mm-hmm. um, of effectively the same creative idea, but just done differently and brilliantly. And uh, like, I, I do think the you know, clearly famous people, but the acting, I mean, the Sean Bean one is just unexpected when you you know what i mean and then the fire drill so such a brilliant line like it's so it's so good I'm glad you uh, liked it. thank you <laughs> but in, in 2023 uh 2023 was the year of music for betty and taylor's both tea and coffee uh yeah true true um oh and and thank you yeah because it's um often the, the yorkshire tea story can kind of take over because that's the kind of like real incredible success story but we have also got other brands so yeah. there's taylor's coffee but just quickly on the yorkshire tea point so yeah 2023 we um we've had an idea for a while it was one of those insights that comes from those early days of twitter that i first started talking about so we know that there are a lot of people out there that are so picky about their tea that they will take tea on holiday with them and it's like i think this maybe exists in other cultures but it's a it's definitely true of brits um and it's an idea we've kicked around for a while but it was only this year that we kind of developed the confidence and set aside the capacity to do something about it um and because we wanted to make uh, a piece of content that was all about taking tea on holiday um we we've had some success with doing musical comedy videos online before uh, but this one was much sort of bigger and bolder but we just thought if we're going to make a song a comedy song about tea and about taking tea on holiday in the summer summer holiday it's got to be a banger um which yeah. kind of led us to the idea of um what if we made it all about a young lad going to ibiza so it's a kind of you know ibiza summer dance track which I, if anyone's not heard it i imagine they're just cringing with awkwardness about how bad this could be and and we were worried about the same thing but thankfully you know like the the talent that we used to yeah. develop the idea and make it the lucky generals uh, team they just did such a good job it's what i love about it is it still feels like it comes from the brand it still feels yeah. true of the brand but it also um feels like it's quite an authentic representation of like a young person's sort of uh, view but also in terms of music as well yeah it's so good i i, I like and, and sorry the inside into you know the packing i remember we were kids we'd go on holidays my mom she would have packed a, a teacup and tea bags like that was wow. you know it was very kind of she, she drink out of the teacups we went away but it was like that you know so it's i think it's universally true but so that track uh when it came out i was like oh my god this is absolutely brilliant that you know and i i i called out uh 
like one of my favorite campaigns of of 23 without a doubt it was on our like summer playlist when we were driving to holidays oh, in wow Cork. like my kids sing it i i just uh, i'm fanboying here i absolutely love it and it was it's the bravery of it it's like it could have gone pear-shaped let's be honest like it really yeah but have been yeah that's true awful uh you know and i suppose that part of I do think that we are a relatively brave brand. I mean, I know there are bolder brands out there, but they're brands that are typically like it's part of their brand DNA to be provocative. Whereas I don't yeah. think Yorkshire Tea wants to be provocative. I think we want to entertain. Um, but I, I would say that even though we're relatively bold, we've got there in increments. So we've done a series of pieces of online content and TV advertising where each time we've taken a step, we thought, is this a step too far? And actually, our audience has said, love it, which has given yeah. us the confidence to take one more step. Um, and I think, you know, we've been working with Lucky Generals now for uh, nearly eight years. Um, and in that time, that's enough time to develop real, like almost telepathic levels of yeah. understanding and trust. Um, so it just felt like it was the right time to try and do something as bold as that. And, you know, the other thing I should probably say is, although like I've sort of kicked around the idea over time what one thing i particularly love is i barely had anything to do with that you know like it was my team and 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 another team at lucky generals all i did was kind of provide the air cover yeah to give to give them the confidence to do it and uh as backup in case you know any, anyone got upset and it went wrong um yeah so i, I still you were there. providing the air cover does give me some license to take credit for it but i you know i didn't make it and so what what was the decision for on the coffee side to kind of go and do mus a musical number there? Yeah, I I do think um the the success of Yorkshire Tea and the kind of things that we've learned on Yorkshire Tea have helped us with Taylor's coffee, but um not always. Like sometimes the we followed the Yorkshire Tea example too closely and then realized right. it doesn't quite work in uh the coffee world because coffee drinkers, even if they are actually the same person as the tea drinker. When they're being a coffee drinker in their head, they care about different things. They think about different things. So we've gradually realized, you know, there's, we've got to tread a slightly different path with Taylor's coffee. Um, I mean, for a start, roast and ground coffee is a much smaller market uh, because when we think about coffee drinking in the UK, we're actually predominantly instant coffee drinkers still. Instant coffee really? is huge. Even, you know, you've, obviously you've got uh, things like Nespresso, you've got High Street. Yeah. Uh, coffee culture, all those things, but instant coffee is still really big. So we're not, it's not as democratic and universal as tea bags when you're trying to advertise Taylor's coffee. Um, but what I think we realized was that we needed to find a platform for Taylor's that was as powerful as the one that Yorkshire Tea has with proper and where everything's done proper. And we did a, quite a lot of research and gradually realized that we were really underutilizing the family nature of the business. But we didn't want to be too explicit and make it about the actual family that own the business because right. they're not involved in the business anymore. Um, and that might make it all a bit paternalistic and old fashioned anyway. But what we thought was there's something about the family quality of the business, the, the values and the fact that we treat each other like family. And they, we think we could extend that to include how we treat our suppliers and how we want to treat our customers. So that idea uh, gradually um, came to the top as like, this is quite a powerful way to communicate why we are worth paying a bit more for. And then it became, well, how on earth do you communicate that idea in a sort of pithy way in yeah. 30 seconds it's going to land? And um, I guess because Lucky Generals know that I and my team have got a bit of a weak spot for musical comedy, they, I, you know, maybe that's what led them to do what they did. But they, they came up with a lovely script that was all based around this, um, this song. And, um, the more that we thought about it, the more that we fell in love with the idea. Um, but we don't have the same level of confidence on Taylor's that we do for Yorkshire Tea because um, Yorkshire Tea, like I said, we've built that confidence over more than a decade. Um, so we still researched the creative before we okay. made it. And I think I went into the creative thinking, we love this, but are we smoking our own dope here? Like, yeah, yeah. Will, will punters like this? And actually, uh, the feedback we got was some of the most positive feedback we've ever had. Um, they were just like, I absolutely love this point. I th I think what you're trying to tell me is this, this, and this. And we were like, oh my God, everything. that's exactly yeah. what we're trying yeah. to say. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I've, you know, I'm really excited actually, because I think we've made some cool stuff for Taylors over the years, but this feels like the first time where we've made something where creatively we're all buzzing about it 
But strategically, I also think we've hit on the right point. Now, the challenge, obviously, is to just ensure enough people see it. Right. Yeah. Um, Which gets into your media investment piece, right? (laughs) Yeah. How do you think about, you've talked about media investment a couple of times. How do you think about your your approach to media investment? Um, I think we are still trying to figure out how to get it right with coffee. Whereas with Yorkshire tea, again, it's one of those things where we, we haven't messed around with the formula and we've tested and then reinforced based on the learnings of the test. Whereas with coffee, I think we've tried various different things and no one thing has jumped out and gone, this is the right way. Okay. So, um, and we've also had some, you know, you know, everybody went through it, didn't they? But during the, um, the, the brief surreal reign of Liz Truss as PM, we also had the mini budget and the mini budget had a catastrophic impact on the British economy. And that impacted us too at a really crucial time when we were trying to budget for a media investment for tailors. So we've, we've just gone through a really rough patch where investment's been quite low and building back the confidence to, uh, launch this new campaign took a lot of work. Um, you know, cause it just felt like there was so much uncertainty. Um, so the research really helped in that case. And the latest, uh, we've had the first wave of our brand tracking come back okay. on our first burst and it's really encouraging. So folk that have seen the ad and recognized the ads, like the messages they're taking from it are exactly the things we needed them to take. But the core challenge is not enough folk have seen the ad yet. And we're also okay. recovering from a period of lower investment where it feels like everything's fallen back. So we're kind of, we're starting from further back than we'd like to, um, which, you know, it's an obvious one, isn't it? But it's that in a way, even though it's a negative, is a helpful lesson to embed in the business that like if you don't continue, keep if you don't keep the momentum of yeah. investment, then you end up having to pay out more later. Hundred percent. I've seen that so many times. Um, you know, my previous role where we'd be in a market, there'd be investment for six to nine months, and then there'd be nervousness or anxiousness and you'd come back out there's decay in your brand health, decay in everything else. And then it's like, well, mm. we should go back in. And you're, you're, you're starting from a lower, such a lower base. And I know it's, it's a really difficult one to, to, to work through because, you know, if there's financial pressures, people are like, well, we'll just cut the budget. And marketing is an easy, easy cut. Yeah. How, how do you kind of address that with kind of your, your senior leadership team? Oh, uh, addressed makes it sound like <laughs> addressed makes it sound like past tense and job done. It's not. Um, oh, it's brilliant. an ongoing battle. I, uh, you know, for, but uh, so I, I worked quite a lot with uh, a lovely guy called John Goldstone, who uh, is a consultant working for the brand gym. And I once heard him talking about the fact that even though he's a, obviously as a marketing guru, he is a champion of uh, investment. But he made this point on a LinkedIn chat around, but the, the, the trouble is as marketeers, we have to accept it's still discretionary, you know, because if, if things absolutely get cut back to the bone, there are some things that you cannot cut and there are some things that you can. So yeah. it's just part of the nature of being in marketing is um, we need to get off our high horse and stop being so sensitive about the fact that we have to prove relatively uh, frequently the value of our, of the investment. Um, so I, I think, you know, I've, I've obviously, I can lean on the fact that we've got the Yorkshire tea story yeah. to talk to my senior people. But, um, the downside is the, the Yorkshire tea story is so ludicrously successful that anything that's not quite as successful as that often looks like a fail. And yeah, I yeah, have right. to work quite hard to say, no, 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 this is Forget a win. That. I mean, compared yeah. to FMCG averages, we're actually doing better than n- normal. We're just not doing quite as well as Yorkshire Tea. That is, um, so there's, I suppose that's the thing though about a role like mine is that you often find that you're not really doing marketing anymore. You're doing the politics about marketing yeah. with yeah. other directors. Yeah. Uh, interesting point. John Goldstone, he's a wonderful human being, uh, one of the nicest. He was, he was, you're my first guest season three. He was the very first guest on this podcast. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful person. Yeah. I had the pleasure of working with John when I first became marketing director in 2016. And I basically needed uh, like a coach and a mentor yeah. to help me, f- oh. you know, back to the earlier point, you know, I absolutely come from a predominantly comms background and I'm conscious that uh, there was a lot about marketing that was 
I'd learned on the job, but I maybe didn't have properly ingrained in me. I didn't have the, you know, the actual discipline. Um, so I worked with John for a while. It was quite a weird experience because lovely human that he is, uh, what we realized was obviously he had been, um, PG Tips was one of the brands under his control yeah. bef- before we worked with each other. But um, it was just interesting to think that we came together after a period of time where our our brands had been rivals. But um, <laughs> yeah, working with someone like John was just so so helpful for me because I just think um, he's one of those sort of rare people that is able to bring together the sort of joy and the creativity of marketing with the hard-nosed, it's got a commercial job to do yes. and you can't yeah. have one without the other. They're yeah. both uh, two sides of the same coin. Yeah, and back to my... I guess, previous point of, you know, it's not a hiding place brand marketing. You know, it has to be commercial. Um, We're getting to the end, but you've talked about kind of as your role progressed and you kind of have evolved and you're you're heading into a new new role at at Taylor's. That's right. Yeah. Um, I, um, so kind of as of now, really, I'm going to take on a slightly different remit. Uh, looking at overall strategy for the business, uh, innovation and diversification. Because I guess, like I mentioned before, the, the success of Yorkshire Tea has been um, uh, fab, but we have always been aware that it's within a declining market. And while we don't want to just sort of be complacent about that, and we will do things to challenge the decline of that market and try to re-energize standard black tea, I don't think that we can bank on that um, forever. Um, and we're, we're trying to grow Yorkshire tea internationally and that's going well. And there's lots and lots of potential for that. But the truth is because we're owned by a family and those, you know, you've got, uh, at least three generations of shareholders in the mix mm. at the moment. And those younger shareholders might well be thinking like, what am I going to inherit in 10 years time? Or when I have children, what will the business look like? So when you're talking those kind of intergenerational timelines where what kind of business do we want to be in 20 years time? I think that's where we need to start thinking seriously about, well, what else might we do with our brands or what other categories might we want to be part of? Or do we really want to have so much of our fortune wrapped up in the tea and coffee industry when the kind of combination of climate change and social change means those two supply industries are really in a perilous state? That you yeah. know, the, the idea that we could be much, much bigger and still be able to reliably source the quality tea and coffee that we need to produce our products is, that's not a given. Um, you know, if you fast forward 25 years, the supply of kind of top quality Arabica coffee is going to be um, highly competitive because there just won't be that many parts of the world where you can grow it. Right. Which is quite yeah. a sobering thought, but yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Too hot, too dry, too wet, too too not, not enough land, you know, all sorts of things that could wow. become problems. So I'm quite excited about that because I really love thinking along those longer timelines and those bigger pictures. Um, the bit that I'm, a, you know, sad about, but I think it's the right thing to do is what it will mean is that I won't be as hands-on with marketing anymore. So I'll okay. be involved in the kind of long-term creative strategy conversations, which I still love, but I won't be involved in the kind of execution of the ads but like I said earlier, you know, I, to be honest, I've been starting to step back from that stuff anyway to allow my team to have the space to do it. And I, you know, I feel like, especially with things like the Pack Your Bag song this summer, I feel like I've got all the evidence I need to show that they've absolutely got it that, and it's yeah, in safe yeah. hands. A brilliant kind of progression opportunity then for, for others. You know what I mean? Like it's, and it's wonderful that, you know, I, I've talked to people about this before where you see in some organizations, you know, those opportunities aren't there and people bring people in over people and, you know, just, you know, oh, we need yeah. to bring people in because they're going to be better. And, you know, but actually, you know, having people, the longevity in the business is, is a great thing because you have the, you have the knowledge of the business, but then you've got all this kind of new, new work to do. It's fantastic. Fantastic. That's good. Thanks for putting it that way, Connor, because the truth is, you know, like I, I'm excited about it, but it's not easy. Like, you know, letting go of things you love is, is a challenge. And also, even though the opportunities you've just described, I think that is the situation, but also the change is not easy for my team. You know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of uh, uncertainty in the air at the moment that people are working through. And I think you do have to kind of keep the faith that it's the change is going to pan out well for folk. But um and even though I know that and I'm telling myself that and I'm telling them that, it's also helpful hearing folk like you remind me. So thank you. Listen, Tom, thank you so much for kicking off season three of That's What I Call Marketing. Um, absolute pleasure. I'm uh, Anyone listening, you 
be unsurprised to hear I'm a huge, huge fan uh, of the brands, the work and, and everything that you're doing. So no wonder you're, you know, you get such high accolades in, in the marketing industry because it, it, it's work that works. So and best of luck with the new with the new role. Thanks so much, Connor. Thanks for having me on. Thanks a million. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. What a great way to kick off season three. Dom has an incredible story to share about the success of Yorkshire Tea, but it is great to hear how it took time to build the confidence that the brand has now and how they're taking the same sort of steps with Taylor's Coffee. It is such great work and it would really be interesting to see what Dom does in his new role and how the marketing team will continue to deliver amazing work. Well, that's it for this episode. As always, thank you for listening and watching. Don't forget to subscribe to That's What I Call Marketing wherever you are watching or listening so you never miss an episode again. And if you would like to get involved with the show through sponsorship or partnerships, get in touch. And if we can help you with your marketing, visit that's what I call marketing.com and see how we can help.